0: Jeremiah 3, verse 20. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 6, verses 8 to 10. Yet I will leave some of you alive. When you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Hosea 11, verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So Ephesians five twenty-five to 27 husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave her and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the water by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish these are weighty matters and so let's pray to the lord uh, that he would speak uh, through his word to us Father, we want to receive the truth of your word. We want to approach you rightly in our hearts and with our lives. God, I pray for humility, that we would hear the hard truths of your description of our waywardness. We would accept what you declare over us. God, would you... Grant me to speak rightly. Would you grant me to portray you correctly? God, I I need your help. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. God, come and give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, that we might both turn away from our sin and turn to you, the one whose love is beyond description. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I think it would be helpful to start by imagining a troubled marriage. Imagine you have a friend named Jay and his wife's name is Tina. This couple has one child together, a daughter. Now unlike most dysfunctional relationships, imagine that the trouble in this marriage is just entirely one-sided. Jay works a stable job, but he doesn't, you know, let it consume him. He just works hard. He even leads an evangelistic Bible study at work. He loves to come home, serve his family, serve others. He's he's a member of a local church. He's 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 submitted to authority. Guys are discipling him. He loves the Lord. He seems to be putting God first in his life. But nonetheless, dysfunction started pretty early in this marriage. The first Tina was smitten with Jay. She she just liked being with him. She appreciated the way he provided for her. She thought he was good-looking and fun to be around. But pretty quickly, she noticed that other guys in her life were also good-looking and also fun to be around. Conversations led to flirtation, led to infatuation, led to temptation, led to adultery. Now, the first time this happened, she she seemed genuinely sorry. I mean, there were tears, there were promises. But Tina didn't keep those promises for long. And things went from bad to worse in a decade-long, dark, depraved spiral. Eventually, Tina was sneaking out of the house almost every evening. She was at the casinos nonstop. She was living a lifestyle of one-night stands and partying. Jay never knew when she would be home. When she was home, she screamed at him, cursed to him, told him she hated him to his face. She'd ruined them financially. She'd maxed out so many credit cards. Jay had lost count of the total. He figured their debts were in the millions by now. The house was in foreclosure, of course. But this, if this were not enough, imagine one day Jay is coming home from work. He, he can't get near the house because the street is just swarmed with emergency vehicles, lights everywhere. He parks a block away. He he hurries down the sidewalk to his front yard, and just in time to see Tina, escorted by cops, into a patrol car. Her wrists are handcuffed, and her hands appear to be covered in blood. A detective identifies Jay and and informs him some terror of some terrible news that Tina has been caught in the act of brutally murdering their daughter. Tina goes to jail, she's accused of first degree murder, the trial's just a sad formality, there was witnesses, there was clear video evidence, it was just an open and shut case, no question. The prosecution recommended the death penalty, the judge, the jury agreed, and now Tina's on death row waiting to be executed. Think about Jay and Tina's relationship. Could any marriage survive that kind of depravity? How should Jay treat Tina? He should leave her, right? This is clear, right? Their marriage is just a disaster. It's broken beyond repair, right? There's, there's nothing but destruction that Tina has brought into their relationship. But sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. You know what is crazy? You know what should be shocking to us as we read the Bible? We see in Scripture again and again that God defines his relationship with his people as a husband and wife, as a bridegroom and a bride. And yet, the bride is completely dysfunctional, like Tina. So when we read the Bible honestly, we'll we'll come to this startling conclusion that we are like Tina. I am like Tina, only worse. You are like Tina, only worse. As we read through the Bible, we should be asking questions like, how could our relationship with God survive the betrayal and the destruction of our repeated sin against Him? How could God bring us back from death row as, as a convicted felon to His side as a beloved bride? That is the the problem that Scripture is clearly teaching us to wrestle with. So this morning, I want to try to tackle that in our short time together. And I believe with all my heart that God wants to deepen our understanding of how serious our sin is against Him. But He also wants to expand our view of how great His love is for us. His love is greater than you could ever dare To imagine. So as we prepare to step into some specific texts, like the ones we've read a few minutes ago, let's just briefly remember the history of God's people in Genesis. They started out as a single family. Just one husband, one wife, Abraham and his wife. They had a son miraculously because of God's promise, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob eventually would become known as Israel, and the whole nation that descended from this family would take his name, the nation of Israel. So God watched over this one family, caused them to multiply, caused them to grow. They became a multitude. And yet, in God's providence, He allowed them to be overpowered by the mighty nation of Egypt. He allowed them to be subjected to slavery. And then God raised up a deliverer in Moses to lead them out of that slavery in Egypt. God fought for them with th- throwing down plagues on the nation of Egypt until the people were so glad to let the, the slaves go, they gave them parting gifts on the way out the door. The, the, the slaves plundered their, their powerful captors on the way out of Egypt. Just an example of God's provision. God continued to lead them personally day by day. He fed them. He gave them water to drink in the wilderness. He provided for them. He protected them. He was patient with them. He was incredibly patient with them. God brought them to the land of promise. God cleared out their enemies. He fought on their behalf. God settled them in safety and prosperity, caused them to flourish He made them strong. But remember, this started as one family of sojourners wandering. Every good thing they had came from the gracious hand of God. God had treated them with incredible love. And that history of Israel, that story of this family that became a nation, is personified in a in an allegory in Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel uh, pictures that history of Israel like this. He says, Israel was like a newborn baby girl who was abandoned outdoors at birth and left to die of exposure in the dirt. God intervened in this helpless child and spoke words of life over her, protected and nurtured her. He cleaned her. He clothed her. And under God's tender care, she became a lovely princess. That's like the nation of Israel. When she came of age, God betrothed her to himself. This is Ezekiel 16, verse 8. So in the middle of this allegory, God says, I, God, pledged myself to you, Israel, entered into a covenant with you. This is the declaration of the Lord God, and you became mine. God covenants with his people. He he makes a promise to them. He enters into an exclusive relationship with them. He promises himself to them and promises them to himself. He says this many places. One example is Exodus 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Now, Notice there's exclusivity here. He doesn't say, I will take you to be one of my people. And I will be one of your gods. No, you will be my only people and I will be your only God. Now first, just, just hear the, hear the love in those words. It sounds just like Song of Solomon 6-3. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. But again, hear the exclusivity as well. It makes perfect sense for the first of the Ten Commandments to be our call to worship this morning, Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God. I alone am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It makes sense. God's love is exclusive in this betrothal, in this covenant that he's made for his people. The Lord was the perfect husband to the nation of Israel, but the people of God were not the perfect bride. One minute, God's people say they love him, they say they'll follow him, they say they'll covenant with him, and seemingly the next minute they cheat on him. Jeremiah 3:20 was our first text this morning. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It's just so clear. Israel left her betrothed husband. Israel committed treachery. Israel left the Lord. So what does that mean? What does it mean to leave the Lord? What is Who did she leave him for, you might ask? There's many descriptions in Scripture of, what that means, here's one, Malachi, 2, 20, or excuse me, Malachi 2 verse 11. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. That's more of what it means to leave the Lord. It means to be faithless. It means to commit abominations, things that God detests. It means to bring profanity, things that are unholy, into God's beloved holy places. Sin caused Israel to worship foreign gods. Their worship should have belonged to Yahweh alone, but they instead worshiped demonic idols like Baal and Molech, doing things that should not have been done. They even stooped so low as to murder their children in those detestable worship practices. The inspiration for my fictional story about Tina and Jay comes from Ezekiel 23:37. Unfortunately, this is not fiction. Ezekiel twenty three thirty seven, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. It's dark. It's serious. It's hard to overstate the gravity of Israel's sin. I don't think I can I can even do it justice. But suffice it to say that Israel had abandoned God, run off with other lovers, and committed spiritual adultery and murder. The cologne of adulterous lovers was on her skin, and the blood of her children was on her hands. Now this this adultery said things to God, and it said things to the world about God. Sin says things about God, and it says things to God. It was as if Israel was saying to her betrothed husband, God, you're not satisfying or glorious enough. God, you're not good enough. You're not a good enough provider for me. I'll have more fun and pleasure with someone else. I'll be more comforted by someone else's embrace. I'll be more enraptured with someone else's beauty. I promise to be with you alone. Forget it. I'm ripping up our vows and I'm throwing this engagement ring back in your face. Sin says things about God and sin says things to God that are not just betrayal, they're blasphemy. Sin is not just betrayal, it's blasphemy. So how does God respond to the blasphemous betrayal of his people? It's complex. There are many factors. But remember, God is not an emotionless robot. God is the source of all right and good emotions. God's response to sin includes the emotion of his heart. He's not a passionless algorithm. You don't just put data into God, and then he spits out an answer. No. So God doesn't just write his people off and move on. No. He poured all of himself into this relationship. He poured all of his heart into this relationship, and he portrays himself as rightly and righteously devastated, So the second scripture reading this morning was from Ezekiel 6, where God talks about how Israel's sin deeply affects him. Again, he's he's writing to warn uh, the the remnants who would would survive the judgment that rightly fell on Israel. Ezekiel 6, 9, and 10. Those of you who escape the judgment will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. Can, can you conceive of a God who can say, I have been broken over the betrayal and sin of His people? God is broken when His people forsake Him and commit spiritual adultery. That word just means what it sounds like. It means like when you take a clay pot and you smash it on the floor into many pieces. Shattered. I tend to think of God as unassailable, unapproachable, unimpeachably sovereign and holy. And he is. He is. But in one sense, In a very real sense, God has voluntarily made himself vulnerable by covenanting with his frail people. And so amazingly, the covenant love of God has led to this, a God who is broken over his people's infidelity. It's just hard to comprehend. God in betrothing himself to Israel, unfaithful Israel, has knowingly, intentionally put himself in a complex and difficult situation, to say the least. On the one hand, his justice, his holiness, his honor demand that he must stop the treachery. He must stop the blasphemy. His honor, his reputation is at stake. This cannot continue. And so God would be right. God would be completely right to wipe these adulterous people off the face of the earth. And yet, as he contemplates that possibility, he is still conflicted within himself after all that they have done. And you can hear that anguish of God in Hosea 11. I'm going to read that again for us, but I just want to comment. Um, there there's some unfamiliar towns referenced here in verse 8. There's a town called Adma and a ta- town called Zeboim. Uh, they were towns in the plain with Sodom and Gomorrah. So when God's judgment came and wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, it also wiped out neighboring towns. These are two of them Adma. And Zeboim. So when God is talking about them, He's talking about utter and complete devastation and destruction. Listen for the complex emotions going on in the heart of God. He's contemplating judgment, and yet His desire for mercy does not go away. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's one of the tribes of Israel. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God, and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Israel deserved to be treated like Sodom and Gomorrah. They deserved to be wiped off the map. They deserved to be an empty impact crater blasted by the meteorite of God's flaming, righteous wrath. But according to Hosea, wrath is not God's preferred or persistent disposition. He will show justice, make no mistake. He will show wrath, but his heart recoils within him at the thought. My heart recoils within me, he says. My compassion grows warm and tender. His compassion continues to stay active. It continues to motivate him. Even in the midst of the ongoing betrayal, the sins of Israel, even in the midst of the the wrath that has rightly been kindled, God still prefers to show his love. He prefers for mercy to triumph over judgment. Even in judging the sinful nation of Israel, he never abandoned his covenant love for his betrothed bride. Remember, God knew all this betrayal was coming. It did not catch him by surprise. He saw this on the horizon, and he stepped down into it anyways. Remember our imaginary couple, Jay and Tina? Imagine Jay could have foreseen all that Tina would put him through, all that it would cost him. And imagine he married her anyway. That sounds crazy, right? It sounds ridiculous, but that's just a little picture. That's like an emoji pointing to the fullness of what God has done in putting his love on wayward sinners. God saw the disaster. God saw the pain ahead for this relationship, and he made the commitment anyway. There is no love like the love of God. think about that a little bit more. In what direction does God move when he encounters the sin of his adulterous bride? In what direction does God move? Does he recoil in horror? Does he withdraw in disgust? No. He actually moves towards... His treacherous bride. God's love is something different from the the earthly human love that we have in our natural selves. There's nothing else like it. God's love is activated. God's love is engaged when he encounters the sin of his beloved people. Our love, apart from God, is not like that. It eventually draws a line that it cannot cross. Our love, apart from God's help, uh, under the strain of sin, will, will crumble and fail. But God's supernatural love is so different. God's love is unstoppable. God's love is unquenchable. God's supernatural love keeps moving towards his bride in mercy, towards his guilty bride in compassion. And it's out of that heart of compassion that Jesus Christ came to earth. His advent on this planet was the decisive arrival of the bridegroom himself in the flesh, God incarnate continuing to come, continuing to advance forward to seek and save his desperately guilty but still beloved bride. Jesus did not recoil from us in horror. Jesus did not withdraw from us in disgust but he just keeps coming, keeps advancing, keeps pursuing in love all the way to the cross and beyond. Remember, all the wickedness and rejection that the bride had brought into the relationship was not academic for him. It was not theoretical. It was raw, personal, in his face, Betrayal of the worst and most intimate kind. But after all that Jesus had been through with his bride, this jilted Jesus, this betrayed Savior, sees the consequences that his wife deserves and says something like this, I know she is guilty, but don't crush her, crush me instead. Isaiah says it so well that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like treacherous adulterers, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his or her own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was no stranger to treachery. Jesus was no stranger to betrayal. That was a familiar relational Dynamic for our Savior ever since Adam and Eve betrayed his loving fellowship for a bite of a forbidden fruit. Did you ever wonder how Jesus could stand to be around Judas? The man who Jesus lived with, ate with, traveled with, the man who would betray him to death. Jesus could, could withstand that kind of dysfunction in his relationship because he was a man despised and rejected, just familiar with betrayal. Consider our Savior as the bridegroom in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood as he anticipates a second rejection. He's already been rejected by his bride. He's anticipating being forsaken by his Father. Hear him on the cross crying out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? so that the bride who had forsaken him would never need to be forsaken by her heavenly father. It's incredible. The love of Jesus, the love of Jesus is stronger than the betrayal of his people. The love of Jesus is stronger than the spiritual adultery of his people. Now today, because of the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, there's a new era for the bride of Christ. Christ now exercises the the authority and power to make his bride who she ought to be. If you have come to Jesus in repentance and faith, confessing your wicked waywardness to him, he continues to move towards you. He continues to move inside you. He takes out that broken, dead heart of stone that cannot love him and he replaces it with a living heart of flesh that can love him rightly, that can respond to his love for you. He sends his Holy Spirit, God himself, God the Spirit, to live inside you and empower you in a new way, to love him with the love of the Spirit himself and to forsake and to hate spiritual adultery in a new way we have new desires we have new affections for our bridegroom we have new hatred for our sin let's look at ephesians 5:26 and 27 again christ loved the church, Oh, how he loved the church and gave himself up for her. He held back nothing that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that in order that, for the purpose of, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God has done, is doing, and will do exactly what he promises. He gave himself up to sanctify his bride, to make her holy. He has cleansed his bride, made her clean, by washing her with his blood, washing her with the word. Beloved, if you belong to Jesus, one day soon the bridegroom will present you to himself without wrinkle or spot or blemish or any flaw. The bridegroom is making the people of God who he wants her to be. Jesus has the power to make the things that are not the things that are. And he has declared over his bride righteousness, holiness, purity. And how can he do that? Because he gives of himself. Jesus clothes us with his own righteousness. and God is making us exactly who he wants us to be. After all that you and I have done to betray and abandon and malign our Savior, we get to come to God innocent, undefiled, pure, holy, Revelation chapter 21 is where redemption is headed. It's where Israel's story, guilty Israel's story, has been headed all along. Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, John pictures this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw not the old guilty Israel, no, I saw the holy city. I saw the new Jerusalem. That's the capital of Israel. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And we know from Ephesians 5 that that means in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Holy and without blemish. Praise God for his transforming eternal love that is greater than our spiritual adultery. This is such a rich topic, is it not? I've only had time to just scratch the surface today. And, and for a, a more full description of who Christ is for his people, I just encourage you to consider reading our book at our Resource Center. And no, it's not our book. Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, So I leaned on his work for some of my comments about the heart of God's uh, love towards his people. So consider continuing to press into the love of Christ uh, by learning more. How else should we live in response to God's great love? We should tell people, this is too good to keep to ourselves. This is the best news. And we should never give up on someone who is enslaved in sin and guilty. No matter how dark the path of someone you care about, someone you know about, God is able to reach into that with his never-stopping, unquenchable love and transform them into part of his beautiful bride. So let's share the gospel with confidence, with joy, and with love. God may want to uh, remind you this morning uh, that you can be free from guilt and condemnation and shame in Christ. There are moments of my life, there are moments of your life that you are no doubt deeply ashamed. But our spiritual adultery towards God is far worse There is nothing that God is unwilling to completely and willingly and joyfully forgive because of the unstoppable love of the bridegroom towards his bride. Let's be a people who who hate idolatry. Let's be a people who pray and fast that God would guard us from sinning against him. Let's be a people that, Hide the word of God in our hearts that we might not sin against him. It's one good way to respond to the amazing love of God. And let's confess our sins to one another freely and with courage. Why would I hide something from you if God has already judged me to be a spiritual adulterer? Why would you hide your sin? (laughs) We're so much worse than we would like to, to put on. The gospel has judged us as guilty and forgiven. Let's confess our sins freely and courageously to one another. And finally, let's come to our God in beautiful humility, in joyful confidence. Listen. Hear me. Beloved, if you have truly seen the ugliness of your spiritual adultery against God, if you've really, truly been been brokenhearted over the way that your sin betrays the Savior, if you really, truly have forsaken your idolatry, your tendency to worship other things besides God, if you have come to Jesus right in the middle of your guilt with the lipstick of sinful lovers still on your face, The scent of their cologne still on your skin and the blood of sin still on your hands. If that's how you've come to God, then you have come to Him rightly. There's no other way to come to Jesus. If that's how you've come to Him, you have come to Him rightly. But hear this, beloved, if He has taken your hand and drawn you to Himself, if he has lifted your guilty chin tenderly, looked you in the eye with eyes of love and whispered, I forgive you. If he has taken off his royal robes and clothed you in his perfect righteousness, then you are clean and beautiful to him. See him smile on his beloved bride Again this morning. Hear Him say, I love you. Again this morning. He has made and He is making you exactly who He wants you to be. Beloved, lift up your heads. You are guilty no more in Christ. If you belong to him, then you are forgiven and beloved by the king. The treachery of your sin is gone. Come and live in the good of who you really are, the purified bride of the greatest, most noble, most loving bridegroom the universe will ever know. Let's pray. How can we thank you? Jesus, for what you've done, would you please help us to respond to you rightly? Would you please help us to throw aside any self-righteousness or worldly condemnation, any worldly sorrow? Would even now, God, as we pray together in a minute, would you help us to to hear your words of love, hear your words of warning, and to see that your love is greater than our sin. Your power can transform a guilty adulterer into a pure and spotless bride. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.